0: This is Black Teacher Matters. I'm Abdel Shakur. It's been a long time. I shouldn't have left you without a dope episode to step to. But we back and talking about the wonderful world of black teaching, particularly the amazing educators that helped shape my practice. Practice. Practice, y'all. Practice. Not the game, but practice. Last episode, we talked to Krista Wilkinson about black women And the power of questions. She's got a book of poetry coming out called Perfect Black. And y'all got to run perfectly to the bookstore to get it because it's going to be awesome. But today's episode is a treat. I get to talk to one of the greatest teachers I know. And maybe I'm biased, but it's my Uncle Bill, a brother who actually got me my first teaching job. I love him. And you're going to love him, too. But before all that, I got a story to tell. I hope you enjoy.
1: Listen to Black Teacher Matters Podcast. Every time you like and share, you are supporting a black teacher.
0: My first year of teaching, Dejan was watchful as a baby bird. Skinny shoulders, lips poked out. He was a 7th grader in my advisory class, and he channel surfed his moods. One day he was the loudest laughing fastest running boy in class. Other days he was whisper quiet and looked like he barely slept. But he was always a sweetheart. He liked the sound of words and would say them over and over and over again. He especially liked the word granddad and would make any excuse to say it. That's my granddad granddad is gonna take me fishing granddad granddad is the best granddad 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 gave me and my cousin jeremiah a ride granddad 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 Granddad. then he chirped and flitted around the room like he was looking for a window to fly out of every day his grandfather escorted him to our door offered a tip of his hat a soft thank you and left with a smile Shaking hands at the door had been my first teaching gambit, but chess chess was a close second. My co-teacher, Hope, and I didn't have much in-hand advisory curriculum, so we were always searching for ways to make the time meaningful. Yes, my co-teacher was named Hope. The year that Barack Obama was elected president, my first year of teaching, I know it's all just very on the nose, but stick with me anyway hope and i uh needed some curriculum and uh i said hey why don't we play some chess hope was a math teacher and she loved a good puzzle so she was all about it we placed boards all around the room one day we paired the kids up i stood in the middle of class and i said today i'm gonna teach you about the most important piece on the board anybody know what this is i held a pawn in my palm That's a pawn, Wanye said from the back. He was sitting at a table with Dejan near the door. That's right, I said, Wanye beamed. Now you need to know three things about pawns. They have little short legs, they have anger management problems, and they do magic. Wanye and Dejan frowned at each other. They can move two squares at first, but then they get tired and hop it one at a time. When they get mad, they go cross-eyed and swing... Swing, 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 diagonal. And if they get across the whole board, they can turn into any piece but the king. Something about that last piece of information always captivates. I took them through a game called pawns where players compete to see who can pass the pawn to the other side first so it can do its magic. I'm about to get you, boy! Wanya said to Dejan. He slapped his pawn down in the center square and wiggled his eyebrows. Wanye already had that grandpa back porch chess master energy already honing in on the mental game dejan on the other hand rested his head on his fists his eyes pinched in a jeweler's gaze how you doing dejan i said (coughs) huh he said he blinked and looked up for a second oh i'm good mr shakur and then he was right back in chess My father, Gilgamesh, was my first chess teacher. On one of those summer days when he was fresh from work, we sat on the worn steps in front of our apartment. My father was always peeling some fruit. He loosened the orange peel with one hand as he fixed the pieces on their squares. He often wore a blue koofy and laughed when I told jokes. The sun soared high above our heads. Rubber bands were good for tying things together or closing things off. So my dad always had one or two on his hand. he snapped the rubber band on his knuckle while he looked closely at the board. If I made a good move, he'd say, Right on, brother. If it was really good, he'd say, Oh, so you're gonna do me like that, huh? He would peel that orange, always offering me half in one single peel. Well, since you did that, I guess I suppose I should probably do something like this and then he would let me have it. I could never beat my dad growing up. He favored bold moves that drilled into a calm position to expose the roiling chaos beneath. My slow little deliberate style was no match for all that change. He whipped my tail many a day. But we often switched sides when he was winning just so he could search out all the possibilities. He made sure we appreciated the board in front of us more than who was winning. So you could do this, sir, then I would probably do this, which would open this file up for this guy, which you could probably respond to with this, and then I might do something like this, and then blah, 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 blah. At the time, I was just annoyed that he wouldn't move. Can you please move? Move your pieces? But now, I see he was showing me the joy of the possible. Like pointing out constellations in the night sky. You ever heard of a Zugzwang? It's a series of moves that lead to inevitable defeat. No matter what you do, no matter where you go, you lose. That was what my first month of teaching was. It was a Zugzwang. My seniors were the stars of the school and had been together since sixth grade. They had their way of doing things, and I was the newbie. When I insisted on handshakes at the door before class, the resistance was intense. But you know after a while they came around. These were smart kids who wanted to learn and they recognized my ambition for them. They wanted us to live up to it. But that kind of gambit does raise the bar. It sends the message that I was not messing around. That I was going to do some of that Joe Clark lean on me educating. Some of that Jaime Escalante stand and deliver instruction. Some of that Lawrence Fishburne, Akilah and the Bee professing. I tried to engineer every square of my class, wall de- decorations, desk arrangements, books displayed, everyone and everything had a place. But after the first days, as we eased into the routine of class, it dawned on me that I didn't know my place. How could I be a transformative teacher when I wasn't sure about my own form should take. Be friendly, but not casual. Be flexible, but not a pushover. Be an authority, but listen. Be informative, but not boring. And the more I hesitated, the more students shifted to the comfortable roles they knew. The striver, the player, the wee head, the baller, the slow one, the bookworm, the young reverend, the rebel poet, the skeptic, the snack seller, the clown. I meant well, I wanted them to love writing and literature as much as I did, but my lessons were dry than a mug. Some kids started getting bored, started entertaining themselves, most of the time they were halfway considerate, something like, motherfucker shut up, oh, oh my bad brother. My classroom management toolbox was thin, so I started handing out detentions like Halloween candy. Even my best students rolled their eyes. He just liked the rest of them, they grumbled. But ironically, it was chess that pulled me out of the zugzwang. On one of my more desperate days, I broke out chess sets. And to my surprise, it caught fire, especially with the boys. They started playing all the time. Lunch, study hall, after school, math class. Chess became a cool senior thing, like yelling out, squirky don't ask, or doing the stanky leg at random moments in English class. Gerald and Everett, my rebel intellectuals, were constantly on the board. I started coming to Darius for tips on sharpening my pawn game. Joseph, with all his frenetic Basquiat energy, preached over games like a chess prophet. I finally was offering something that they were 100% really into learning. Even Cleveland, who considered himself to be the boss of any space he occupied, listened intently as I talked about opening strategy. Class wasn't a breeze, but I was less worried about where to place my piece. Now at this point, Dejan was far beyond pawn games. Him and his buddy Javon could dismantle any of the seniors, even though they were in seventh grade. Now I'm no grandmaster, but I ain't no slouch either. I know how to play. And usually I can play more than one board at a time, checking with folks, hey, how you doing? Okay, I'm gonna make my move. Now I'm gonna go over here, play this other game. But when I played Dajon, I had to sit my tail down and concentrate. He played like a good boxer. No silly traps, or memorized combos, just playing the board in front of him. One punch and then another. While most kids got discouraged by mistakes or lost pieces, not Dajon. He might be munching nacho chips, yelling at a friend across the room, but when he slid back into chess, he was completely, utterly present. And when did you know, one fateful day at the end of chess club, I was playing Dejan, and it dawned on me that I was about to lose to this child. This 13-year-old. I hated to lose, but I was overcome by awe for this boy. Looking at the board so intently, not yet seeing what I could see, all I could say was, oh, so you gonna do me like that, huh? Dejan smiled, and three moves later, he and Javon were running around the room like they had won the world championship. We had a chess tournament at the end of the year to capitalize on all this chess fever. Kids from all grades, boys, girls, and community members came to play. The room was packed, and it was a kind of special energy to see all these black folks coming together to play a game. We ate pizza at the end of the day and gave out a bunch of trophies. It went so well, in fact, that when we got an invite to tournament at Whitney Young High School, I thought I would have to order a bus to take all the kids who'd be interested but that wasn't the case everyone had an excuse but one kid said what well, others wouldn't why go waiting with Whitney Young if you know you're gonna lose so that Saturday the only one who was ready to play was Dejan after I picked him up and his, him and his cousin Jeremiah we stopped at McDonald's and ate breakfast sandwiches. Have you ever seen teenage boys eat breakfast sandwiches? It's amazing. Anyway, our school was tiny compared to Whitney Young, which felt more like a small college. They had one of the best chess teams in the state. We walked into a large gym with long rows of chess boards with kids and parents milling about. I got the boys signed up for the middle school bracket, and they sat down to play. I took a lot of pictures that day, but I have two favorites. The first is Dajon in his first game, sitting across from an Asian boy with a white striped polo, Steve Job glasses, and the bored eyes of a future grandmaster. Dejan has his elbows on the table. He's focused on his attacking the Black King on B8. Chess culture is big on detachment, so you might not understand how nervous the other boy is until you notice he's making a snack of his index finger. The game was on a clock, so I was worried that Dejan might lose on time or not be able to find mate, but Dejan sure enough checkmated him. Later, he was giddy when he told me how astounded his opponent was when he lost. He was doing like this, Mr. Shakur. He made his face completely still and stared like a goldfish. What? 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 Dejan soaked in the moment, but after he told Jeremiah, he went looking for his next opponent. Now, Dejan and Jeremiah played some good chess at Whitney Young that day, but lost the rest of their games. By lunch, they were ready for something else. So we found some kids hooping in a nearby gym, which leads me to my second favorite pitcher. Dejan is waiting for a rebound, while Jeremiah takes a shot, they are running rings around some kids in a game of two-on-two. Two. Same kids from the tournament. In this space, Dejon and Jeremiah, again, are all business. But their intensity feels like a special kind of joy. Two stars in a constellation of the possible.
1: Have to believe in your mind and heart and soul against all evidence that every single person has the capacity to learn something and be better than who they were and uh, make other things better than what they are you got to believe that even the worst things and sometimes that's really hard there'd be days when i'd have kids and i'd say this kid's you know absolutely is not going to be able to do this and uh within a few weeks or a month you know there they are you also got to be somebody who likes to perform a little bit, you know, because you got to you got to be uh, somebody who's imparting party knowledge, but you got to be a little bit of an entertainer. You got to be a little bit of a disciplinarian. You got to be a bit of a mommy and a daddy. You know, in some cases, you got to be a little bit of a pet. I've even been a pet, you know, for kids. So you got to be a pet. You know, it depends. Whatever it takes. Wait, what does that mean to be a pet to you? <laughs> to be a pet. Oh, you know, he's having a we got he's having a bad day. We got to, we got to, you know. <laughs> You know, slow down, Bill, calm down. You know, it's like, you know, you talk, it'll be all right. It'll be all right, boy. You know, you got to let them take care of you sometime. <laughs> and they will. Sometimes, you know, if, if, they, if you give them a chance. When you teach people stuff, it comes back in very unexpected ways. And some of that is, is um, the loving and the caring parts.
0: My dad and I went to visit my Uncle Bill when I was 10. We ditched his Civic and rented a hog, a big blue Cadillac. We covered the 2,000 miles between Oakland and Minneapolis, listening to James Brown saying that, too much is rough, but not too bad, because it's better than dying from something that you never had. And we crunched Cheez-Its and carrots. And we talked a lot. Finally, we pulled up in a tree-lined neighborhood My little cousins Kyle and Neil run out full of smiles and curiosity. Behind them was my uncle, a big man with thick black glasses, who smiled like he had stories to share with me. And so he does. Whether it's Miles Davis, Japanese architecture, printmaking, or the Minnesota Vikings, my uncle knows a lot about a lot of things and a little bit about everything. Just ask him. He makes beautiful art, he raised a beautiful family, and he's a great teacher, and he's so damn loving. He hooked me up with my first teaching job working in a summer arts program called the African Academy for Accelerated Learning. I was his assistant and got schooled on how a master teacher allows himself to be curious about each of the children who came through the door. How he spoke to those little people, like they were inherently interesting and that they had knowledge that was worth knowing, something that he could find fascinating. He's an artist an art teacher, and he's been in practice for over 30 years. Bill Jeter.
1: There was a kid that came to my class one time. He was, uh, I don't know, first time I seen him, I had to tell him to stop switching the light off and on. He's standing up there, the light switch. He wouldn't he wouldn't talk, but all he'd do is switch the light switch off and on. I said, could you please? told me could you please don't do that like son could you just have a seat over there and he kept on doing it and I'm thinking this is going to be hell by the end of that kid's two years he was one of the best kids that I had hmm. now some of his behaviors was a little strange but once I found out what quote turned him on and it was this thing letting him be able to make it any way that he wants And if you let him if you could figure out a way Inside of the assignment to let him do it however he wanted, he would come up with something that would be far and above what anybody else did. It might take longer, but it was always, you know, I said, well, let me see what you did. I give him credit for that. And then kind I of say, now, um, I'm going to give you this A now, but I'm going to trust that you'll be able to finish this like you need to and like you want to. And every single time he did it that way. He wasn't doing it in some classes, but he did it in that. But they weren't able to give him that kind of leeway.
0: My father's folks escaped from rural South Carolina. Racial terrorism and limited opportunity drove William and Leela Jeter north during the Great Migration. They didn't get a lot of schooling, but they learned the value of education.
1: I come from parents who were raised during the Depression, um, and grew up in before the Depression, born before the Depression and raised right right through it. Like a lot of Americans, um, they were raised in South Carolina. We know politically now what that was like now, so you can imagine what it was like in the 20s and 30s, and that's how they were raised. Um, they were sharecroppers children. So they didn't have opportunities to go to school unless the crops was, was uh, didn't need to be tended or stuff like that. Consequently, these people were rabid. They was rabid about education. They was absolutely mad, crazy about education, about getting it. And they knew what it was because they saw it vicariously through other people, what it could do for them, how it, how, how it gave them opportunities. They didn't understand distinctly what it was because they didn't have it, but they knew it was important. So anytime we wanted anything that had to do with education, they was for it, you know. So anything that had to do with education, they would do it. If you say, I want a bike, you didn't get it, you know. <laughs> you know I want a, I want a baseball glove, you didn't get it, you know, unless somebody gave it to you and it was a hand-me-down or something like that. But it was an education thing. They would She would buy it firsthand. She would get it. One of the things that I learned really early was the difference between uh, education and wisdom. These people had amazing wisdom, and they had amazing ways to self-sustain and to sustain themselves. They just didn't know those things. It's led me to think about um, the difference between um, being ignorant and, to some degree, being wanted. Where you just don't, you just don't want to learn. And these people were ignorant people, but ignorance is not a negative. You know, it's an unknown, I just don't know, but I might want to find out. They were the people that wanted to find out. They just didn't have the opportunity. And so when we had that
0: opportunity, then they get it. So, my grandparents escape South Carolina and know that education is the way. They get to New Jersey and settle into Red Bank, a town with a solid black community. My grandma gets a job as a maid in Little Silver, where the rich white folks live. One of her sons, then named Clarence, now known as Gilgamesh, goes to high school and meets a girl from Little Silver, and her name is Diane. These rebel sweethearts fall in love, and well, that's where I come in. That's a story for a different time. But my Uncle Bill said that growing up in Red Bank gave him a very different experience than his parents. So you grew up in uh, Little Silver, New Jersey? Red Bank. Red Bank. Right. Red Bank. Sorry. I
1: always be, uh, I, yeah. I know some that that did, did grow up in Little Silver. I know. I know. Cause that's, that's Red the place Red we always visited. So I, that's, well, like, that was the other side of the tracks. That was a good right. side. <laughs> <guys> <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Well, I had a really unique school, school experience all the way through starting in Red Bank. You know, Red Bank, uh, New Jersey is a little town on the Jersey shore. There's a whole string of them. They run up and down the shore of New Jersey They go all the way to New York city and all the way down past uh, Philadelphia. The kind of, uh, racial animosity that people grew up with, I didn't really feel that. My parents sheltered us from that, number one. But number two, I grew up in New Jersey. And this was even in the late 50s and early 60s, it was very different than it would have been if, say, if I have grown up in South Carolina, where my parents were from. That made a huge difference. Consequently, I never was in segregated schools. So even when I was in kindergarten, I had white kids in my class. And I'm 68 years old now. Um, I had uh, Italian kids that lived around the corner from us. Jewish kids that lived down the street and Jewish people were white people to me because that's all I knew. It was either he was black or he was white or maybe Puerto Rican, but I didn't know nothing about people from Mexico or anything else. so that's what I grew up with
0: Uncle Bill grew up in a liminal space where segregation had a more complicated legacy. His school was integrated but his community was segregated. This created a space where he came under the influence of a powerful black teacher, Miss Parker.
1: The teacher that really formed me though was a teacher named Miss Parker. Miss Parker was a really interesting teacher. That was our fifth grade teacher. She was um an African American woman. Um interestingly though, when and maybe not important now, maybe is, but she was very fair skinned. Very fair skinned. I uh, you know, I don't think she was what we call biracial, but she was a very fair skinned woman, um, is what I remember because she had like green eyes and but but she was this very Afrocentric teacher. She also had contact back in that day. Um people had context one of the things that was really unique about my education was i got to meet people because teachers uh, like miss parker mrs parker's family was considered kind of an aristocracy they were graduates of historically black colleges and her husband was a medical doctor not only was he a medical doctor but his two brothers were doctors as well so there's three black men who were doctors in our community and um one was a dentist and two of them were mds and um, I talk to people like that. When I grew up, the doctors came to your house. You know, the doctor came to our house that treated me and your dad was a black man. He sat on the side of your bed and he had a black bag and it had a stethoscope in it and it had stuff. And I just took that for granted. The black man sits on your bed, opens up a black bag, takes out a stethoscope and starts listening to your heart, like right in your bed. It didn't seem odd at all. <laughs> and so I grew up with these images and with that kind of experience. Could, could, huh? you, just say, you just said she had context, right? Yeah can you can, you, can you say a little bit
0: more about what you mean by that?
1: well because she had uh, they had this knowledge base and she had this she had all of these associations I got to meet I got to meet uh, Alex Haley through her I got to meet Jackie Robinson <laughs> through her <laughs> seriously uh, I got to meet Count Basie. <laughs> you know through her these are all people who had associations they were in these kind of groups and so these people that i'm talking about they knew these people like the parkers the parkers were the educational center of the community that i came from <clears throat> because they were listened to number one they were made with doctors and teachers and lawyers and stuff but uh they were the people who uh were sort of the pinnacle you could look at them and see if you get educated these are the kind of things you can do and you can see that like i said you have a black doctor sitting right at your bed. And so um, strangely, that was one of the consequences of segregation, strangely enough. And New Jersey where I grew up at with, it was de facto, meaning that it wasn't like it wasn't a South where, you know, nigga, you can't be here. It wasn't like that. It was sort of like, well we, well, we really can't show you that house or, you know, you probably won't be happy in that neighborhood. And so you didn't get to live there because of that, those reasons. And so even the people like the Parkers who were educated, who were, you know, by and large, relatively wealthy, they live right around you. They had nicer houses than you did, but they didn't live far away from you. Everybody lived in proximity. Everybody lived pretty close together. Because, of that. so you learn a lot of stuff just from that, you know, seeing them and then you play with their kids and then you had to go to, you could go to their house and you can see all the pictures on the wall with the fraternities and the sororities and all the things that they did, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's made you think about, oh, you know, this, well, you could have that or you could do this. Um, more than that though, they they kind of held you to a standard. These were teachers who were, uh by well, our standards, would be considered mean people because they didn't have no time for nonsense. You know, if you were in her Mrs. Barker's class, you had to do the work. You know, um, I learned a lot of things uh,
0: through her. She was probably my
1: formative teacher that did that.
0: Listening to my uncle, I couldn't help but think back to episode one, where I talked to my high school English teacher, Mr. Miller, about growing up in a diverse black community on the south side of Chicago. There was a formative moment for so many teachers in that generation where segregation created an intellectual crucible that produced black teaching with context connected to a legacy of learning, a real community altogether of learners. So Uncle Bill leaves Red Bank for college and ends up starting his teaching career in Minnesota, where black art teachers are few and far between. Whereas the Parker family had context in their community, my uncle had almost none. That meant gasps and stares when he entered a classroom. It meant being hyper-aware of how he was perceived. It meant not only teaching art, but also teaching white people basic stuff, like the fact that the palm of his hand wasn't black, or that you shouldn't do Nazi fan art in class, or even that a black man like him could exist. And all that extra teaching, of course, can take a toll.
1: One of the things I had as as a teacher was I was always I was always, my reputation was being calm. And I'm not really a calm person, (laughs) you know, I I can be pretty volatile. But I had this kind of Zen thing when I was in the classroom where I could be amazingly calm. And and never raise my voice and all this stuff, and that was my rep. <laughs> you know, he never, you know, he doesn't, you know, he'll say things that will make you really think about it, and it might even seem abrupt or sarcastic, but it's not going to be loud. He's not going to be in your face. And so it was the calmness and the, the sort of, uh, I just under control things that was part of my rep. So that was very helpful to have that. Um, you find that comes at a price internally for yourself as a teacher, but it was that. You know, and everybody don't have that. You know, some teachers are yellers and some are, I wasn't a yeller. I I didn't do that. I had a presence. I mean, it's a big black guy in the room. You know, everybody knows that. So there's that. That's always a a given. But it was, it wasn't that. It was the big blackness that's calm. (laughs) That did it. The big blackness that's calm. Like this guy could probably start turning over tables any minute, but somehow he's not. And he's, you know, saying, you know, we are going to have to change this up. You're going to have to find another way to, you know, Digress or do this. You can't do it that way. And and uh, sometimes that was hard. I had to go later on and scream and carry on. But but uh, it was that calmness, this kind of Zen kind of moment, and trying to be be outside of yourself. And so I was always aware of myself in different places in the room, not just where I was, but if I was over there, what it would sound like. If I was over there, what does this sound like? You know, how does it? How does this come across to somebody who who's passing by outside? What does it sound like to them? And so I had that ability to kind of move myself around the room with different kids.
0: What can I ask? I mean, I hate to be like this,
1: but that sounds a little bit like double consciousness. I don't know what it was, but it was something that I call empathy, kind of an empathetic pathway where I would try to figure out, you know, um, and it was, you know, I had, sometimes it would be like, if I had a kid, I had a kid who had cerebral palsy and I had to teach printmaking. Well, how am I going to do that? The kids, you know, they, they, you know, I had to figure out, I had to actually build something and that was a challenge, but now I'm, I'm a learner. I'm going to have to try to learn how to make something so this kid can do the printing. And I did, you know, I had to do that to make it so that they could do it. But that's what I mean. If, how do I, man, to do that, I had to get down on my knees, you know, on a little thing and put my arm like this and say, can I, can I do this? Can I make the print like this? And then I had to make a thing that, that I could do to make a print like that because that's how that kid has to do it, you know? And sometimes, rather than trying to make it so that I'm gonna to try to make this kid, you know, do it like I can do it. Then I had to figure well, how can they do it? And I had to design something so that they can do it with their arm and their hand and the angle that it is at. And that, that that's um, that's very hard. But there's that that ability to, to uh, place yourself, to place yourself in the situation that the other person's in, is, is very hard.
0: See? See? See what black teachers do? Self-consciousness and displacement are a barrier when you're operating a white supremacist framework. But leave it up to black folks to improvise with it, to use it, to reach those most marginalized, to adapt and teach more effectively. Dang, love me some black teachers. So how does all this relate to the education of black children?
1: When I interact with black students, I realize this, I have to be very, very careful. I have to be very careful because the thing that you're trying to do with them is so delicate because many of them have been traumatized so much by the process of what we call education. And so you have to be very careful about this, like dismantling a bomb almost, cause it can go off. <laughs> so you gotta be careful how you say it. You gotta, until you, you gotta kind of work up on it and see, you know, um, you play chess right now today, because of a man named, uh, let's see, that teacher's name was uh, Mr. Lee. Mr. Lee was an eighth grade teacher and he had a rowdy class. He was a, he was a new teacher. He was an older guy, but he'd just come in to teach him. He couldn't control the class. I mean, there was a guy in my class, Greg Northley. He was like 6'2 and he was only in the eighth grade. Big guy. And so he was he, the guy couldn't control him. He couldn't control the class. And then one day we came in and he was sitting at his desk. And he had a, a chess set sitting out there. And he was moving chess pieces around on the table, and we were just running around the room like we always do, doing things. And he said, uh, and then one, and then Greg Northley was the big kid. Went over I said, "What are you doing?" And he says, "I'm playing chess." And he says, "Well, he said, Well, what's that?'" And he said, "They tried to, And he says, "Oh, it's just a game." He says, "Well, uh, let me play." And he said, "Oh, you can't play this. You don't. You, you don't have. <laughs> you couldn't do this. You don't have. You don't have what it takes. <laughs> you couldn't do that." I said, "Oh, yes, I can." And I'll tell you, within a day or two, it was probably three or four kids. a week half the class within two weeks every kid in the class was playing chess he had all these chess sets the class was all quiet just like you see on tv with the comedies this was a black teacher um i went home and i taught gilgamesh how to play (laughs) and then he got really good and i um and then he kept that up and eventually you know it got to you you know how to play chess because a black teacher taught me how to play chess in the eighth grade because he couldn't control the class you know so education takes it takes all these twisty turny, turny things with it that sometimes, you know, don't start out as necessarily uh, educational learning experiences. It just turns out of the way, this guy just got to get control of this classroom somehow. And that turned out to be the thing. And now generations later, there's still people playing chess because of what he did that day in the classroom. So I'm aware of, it, of how teaching can affect and on that level sometimes. So it's imperceptible things, inadvertent things, things you don't have to do or don't want to do. So you have to be very careful. Very careful about pushing buttons and touching things and making sure, because sometimes when you push the wrong button, you can't make it go back.
0: That's right. My students learned chess from me in 2008 because of a black teacher way back in the early 1960s. Is that too much? Is that a little too on the nose? I don't know what to say, but just to remind you that this legacy of black teaching is not a game. We out here, passing down this knowledge. But if you know black teachers, or been one yourself, you know there's white students that need black teachers too.
1: But sometimes I have felt like when I worked at Purpage that um, I was the most important thing in education that many of these kids had ever had. Hmm. And it wasn't necessarily because I knew the art and knew how to teach the things that they needed to see to learn, but it's also because of, um, of them uh, and their interactions with me I literally have worked with kids, and that's why, I mean, I can understand a little bit of the politic of the day because of it. I've had kids uh, come to me, uh, white kids, and say, you know, after, after the year is over, after they spent a the year with me or two years, and they said, Bill, when I first met you, um, this, that, or the other, one kid said, you know, when Bill, my father my father would uh, would have a hard time shaking your hand. And he said, my grandfather wouldn't even be able to look you in the eye. He says, but um, it was a girl. She said, but the kind of things that I've learned here and the kind of things that I've learned from you and the stuff that I could have, um, you know, going forward with me, everybody that I come in contact with is going to know what I know. Sometimes it was white kids I found needed you more than anything because they need to find ways out of this, this, disillusion illusion that they live in. And many of them do live in these illusionistic kind of worlds that have been generated by their, by their families and their culture in that way. Um, the black kids are very dear to my heart, but I've had some really unique experiences with students who are white, just like I had unique experiences with teachers who are white. You know, it's just kind of how it is. If you believe in it really strongly enough, I think it can transcend um, a lot of barriers.
0: I appreciate what my uncle was saying about white students. Definitely educate them white kids. But is it wrong for me to say that I've been feeling a little tired a little exhausted like when a white boy tells you his father couldn't get a teaching job because they were hiring unqualified black teachers or when a white parent calls you by your first name and says he doesn't trust you to quote serve his family or how about another white parent who says that her black son refuses to let her read the word nigga out loud and she insists on saying it out loud to you you talk about diffusing a bomb Teaching white students while black is so exhausting because the bomb you're diffusing has been designed to blow you up. Schools were designed to assemble these very same bombs. On bad days, it's hard to know if you're having any effect at all. On worse days, it's hard to know if the effect you're having is worth the cost. Sometimes it all feels like trickle-down economics. Whew! So tired. But... We persist.
1: I don't know. You got to be, you got to be, you got to be somebody who's willing to sacrifice a little bit to teach. You got to be somebody who's willing to um, go against the norm that you have inside of you. You know, there'll be a lot of times where I want to say get out, you know, and that's the first thing that pops in your head. But then you have to think it through. You know, and it's like, okay, well, I don't, you don't really want to get out, but I want you to, you know, get out of that and then, you know, adjust somehow. How can we do this? I've had to take kids out in the hallway and say, look, we're never going to see eye to eye on these things, but how can we negotiate and navigate this so both of us can have some success here this year? My educational philosophy, when I had kids come into my classes was fundamentally, I want you to learn one thing today and I want you to go, go away with at least two questions about something that you didn't know, didn't learn. You know and if you can do that consistently, learn one thing and come away with two questions. You know, over time, that's going to become, you know, a way of of, of advancing yourself.
0: Miss Parker would be proud. Big thank you to my uncle Bill Jeter for his love, wisdom, and time during this podcast and just during this life. I would not be here without you, sir. Thank you to my executive producer, the warrior genius, Candace Shakur. Thanks to my street team, Sonny, Benjamin, and Lucy. Always holding it down for daddy. And thanks to you for listening. See you next time on Black Teacher Matters.